to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Um, yeah, so <laughs> welcome back, devotees. <laughs> now that you've gotten that great intro. <laughs> the show. show is sponsored by Boobies and Newbies. <laughs> I wish. I love her. Ah, uh, such a great show. <laughs> it is. It is not true crime. There is rarely murder in there. I think once there was a murder. And I was just ooh. like, murder? Yeah, in the book. So that was like, ooh, fun. But Lindsay's back from 33% poll. Hey, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Lindsay's back. Back. Back, back again. again. Guess Lindsay's back. back. Tell a friend. Lindsay's back. Lindsay's back. <laughs> that should be your ringtone now. <laughs> I'll strip it. I'll strip it and put it and make it your like if you were to ever call me, it's gonna be that's my that'll be my ringtone for you. If I get a job in California and I'm applying to jobs for the umpteenth time, or if I make it back to California in the southern portion. Call me. Call that's me true. Courtney. <laughs> I mean, I did change your, your, uh, your, you're going to enjoy this. I changed your info in my phone and I put crabs in it. Yes. That's hilarious. <laughs> Cause you need to have reference points for everyone. Because dear listener, not because I have crabs, rather <laughs> it is because, uh, on 33% pulp, we, we take books, divide them into thirds and recap them across three episodes. And our very first book was called Night of the Crabs about a bunch of killer crabs that kill people. So <laughs> in Wales of all places, that was the best part. Cause you're like, where is this? <laughs> we can't pronounce the names of the places or anything. It's just like in Wales. Uh, yeah. So that's awesome. Thank you for putting crabs in my name. <laughs> I think I just remember listening to the first episodes and I was like, this is hilarious and I love it. I love everything about it. Um, how do I not subscribe to this and <laughs> enjoy every aspect? Because you're just, oh my God. It's, the crab ones are extra fun because they're semi raunchy for yeah. no reason. And then the last one, I think we were like, it's the the king crab and they're like psych it's not a king it's a queen <laughs> yeah we had a queen crab the queen is in australia the king is in wales and it was These crabs to get around yeah they it's it's world domination really um be aware about uh crabs we learned a little bit about crab anatomy but you you were on the show twice yes yes you did the companion episode for one of our contra wife uh companions <sighs> And then you that, joined us for Do Not Murder be. Before Christmas. You got to murder Poot. after Christmas with Poot. Yeah. yeah. Which my, I left, I, I think I sent you something a while ago where my, something I was doing autocorrected or I mistyped and it came out Poot. Yeah. And I was just like. Condition. Poot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, for work. For work, yeah. Because it was a house condition is Poot. Not poor. Poot. Oh. So. Are you ready for some murder? I am. I am ready for <clears throat> not myself being murdered, but I'm ready to hear about murder. Yeah. Murder. So, dear listeners, Lindsay knows this already. I was researching the person. It's a serial killer. And I'm going through. And you know it's a bad sign when you open the Murderpedia page, because I feel like that's how everyone starts their murder 
murder search when you're doing research. <laughs> and there's one article, mm. and I was just like, and not a long one. And I literally, I think it was in the office, and I go, oh shit. <laughs> so I gathered everything, and my notes were very scant. And so I go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a double Ohio serial killer episode. A twofer. It's a twofer. A two for one. I like it. But they're both in Ohio? How many serial killers can one state have? I don't know. All right. Okay, never mind. (laughs) You're in California. I mean, Ohio. California. Never mind. Scratch the question. (laughs) Wait, the real question is how many serial killers can Southern California hold? The answer is a lot. A lot, actually, unfortunately. I feel like that's Ohio, too. Yeah. Really the United States. It's something we're famous for, I think, you know. The lead poisoning. I, have you heard the, the theory that the reason why, besides, like, we've had less serial killers is because there was a lot of, like, lead paint and, like, ke- more harsh chemicals in, like, toys and stuff earlier on. So people, like, were having more mental issues because of, like, lead poisoning and heavy metal poisoning and all this, and it just, like, changed their brain function. Oh, my God. No. Is this an actual thing or, like, a theory or... I this think must it's be a theory. theory yeah. I don't wow. know if anyone's done research on it, but I mean, we've also gotten a lot better at, you know, stopping them because now they say if the person had the chance, it's most likely they would have been a serial killer, but they catch them on like murder two instead of like, you know, murder 48. <laughs> yeah. And, like DNA and things probably help. Yeah. So we're going to have two Ohio gems, two, two great Buckeyes here, guys. <laughs> you know what a Buckeye is, right? I know what a Buckeye is. Okay. It's a candy. That is the correct answer, always. <laughs> it is also a nut. It's our state nut. I don't know why states have state nuts, but it's our state nut and I think tree. Oh, okay. And it's the Ohio State Buckeyes. Like it's a mascot, too, or something. Yes, Brutus. Yeah. He's a Buckeye He's a buckeye nut with a body, which is <laughs> disturbing if you think about it too much. <laughs> okay. It's okay. disturbing if you look at him too much, too. Like, just <laughs> someone who doesn't like football. So, we have a gentleman named Richard Tingler. I should have looked up how it's... Tingler? Yeah, born out of wedlock in December 1940. He was raised by a mother who beat him regularly, interspersing punishment with frequent reminders that her son was born in sin. So a healthy childhood. It sounds oh, great. Oh, God. Wait, so he did one, of- one more. He's wa- born in the 40s, you said? Yes. Okay. Yeah, 1940 to be specific, the beginning. Okay. So we're post-depression, mostly. Wait. Yes, mostly. Yeah. So he did what everyone does, and you enlist in the army or the military. He enlisted in the Air Force, and he experiences his first run-in with police in June 1959 while stationed in Alaska. Funny thing, I had my great-uncle was stationed in Alaska with the Air Force for a little bit, but later on, (laughs) thank God. Yeah. Tingler decided to go AWOL with a friend. He was arrested on charge of burglary in Anchorage and wound up pleading guilty to four other break-ins. So that's a total of five break-ins at this point mm-hmm. in 59. So he is 29. So he was transferred several times during his two-year federal sentence because, you know, he's in the Air Force. When he was released, he returned home uh, to Chillicothe, Ohio in February 1961. I'm sorry, he was released from Chillicothe because there's a prison there in Ohio in February 1961. There's also a suspected serial killer going around Chillicothe currently, but they also are in the midst of the 
giant opioid epidemic that is dominating Southern Ohio. Yeah. Six months later, with the same Air Force buddy, he was busted in Portsmouth, Ohio, on 13 counts of breaking and entering. So we're up to 18 counts of burglary. <laughs> this guy. Wow. He's going for that punch card. <laughs> burglary punch card. Like if you get enough uh, punches, then you get just you just they they just give it to you. Like just take the TV. <laughs> uh, the state, the government's like. That 20th one is free. <laughs> so he's sent off to state prison. Who knows? He could have been sent to the famous Mansfield prison, a.k.a. Shawshank, mm. for a term of one to 15 years. You know. That's quite a stretch. I think it's how good he was, mm. uh, like, in prison. And he was paroled in August 1964. So that's... Three years? Uh, yes. So three years in prison. For burglary. For burglary. For 13 burglaries. <laughs> for, yeah. That's the thing. Um, he did some more burglaring. Burg- burglarizing. Burglars. Bur- burgling. Burgling. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a verb. It's burgling. And he went back to prison. He was finally released in February 1968. So he's been in and out of prison since 59. So almost a decade in and out of prison. Uh-huh. Now, we're going to see him upgrade. September 16th. In 68, early morning joggers found four bodies laid out side by side in Cleveland's Rockefeller Park. So he's literally going to hit the entire state, pretty much. Well, most of the state. Four bodies. Four bodies. The victims were slain by multiple gunshots from two different weapons, including um, tavern proprietor Joseph Zoldman, two of his part-time bartenders, and a young female uh, sex worker. Again, I'm pulling these from articles that are older, so terminology guys <laughs> the, the authorities determined that they were taken hostage in the tavern robbery conveyed to the park at gunpoint and then murdered there to eliminate with witnesses so and that's that's like all you get on this trust me i've looked so a month later still in 68 we fought on october 20th a lone gunman enters a dairy bar in columbus ohio <laughs> is it the dairy farmer <laughs> Oh, UDF? I don't know if it's UDF. It could be a UDF. Who knows? UDF, great ice cream, great prices on gas. <laughs> Not a sponsor. I just went there. I go there a lot. Um, uh, near closing time. So he comes in. He got $562 out of the register, which, good for you for making that much money, Dairy Bar. Seriously. And he ordered manager Phyllis Crow and the two teenager empl- teenage employees, Susan Pack and Jimmy Seed, Steven, ugh, Stevens into the back room. He binds their hands, and just as he is beginning to leave, he stops in the doorway, gets angry, and snarls, quote, what the hell? I ain't got nothing to lose. I'm gonna kill you all, end quote. So, you know, great guy. How do they know that he said that, though? So m- one of them must have lived. We'll get to it. He took a door, um, uh, so the door of the safe off its mountings, he advanced on Pack and Stevens, pounding their skulls in a frenzy, then turned to Crow. He twisted a coat hanger around her neck, choking her into unconsciousness and leaving her for dead. Mm. She woke and struggled free. Half an hour later, she found both her employees had been shot in the back of the head. So he thought she was already dead. And so he didn't shoot her. They did ballistics on the gun and they figured out it was used one of the guns was used in the cleveland shooting and they were going through mugshots and she pointed out richard tinglier as her assailant so 
That's a lot of murdering. An attempt of murdering. Six six murders. Six murders and one attempt of murder. Plus thirteen burglaries. I think we're we are way past thirteen burglaries. I think when they stop counting your burglaries. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you, yeah. So Tingler was added to the FBI's ten most wanted list, and you can look up. I'll probably share it, his photo for it on November eighth, nineteen sixty eight. But by the time he had his name on there, he had changed his name and was living under the name of Don Williams. He secured employment on a farm owned by Alvin Hoffman, which I laughed because uh, one of my Patreon f- episodes is on Matthew Hoffman, who is from Mount Vernon, Ohio, and he really had a thing for trees. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He had a weird thing for trees, man. Uh, so you got to subscribe to Patreon to hear all about that. But So Alvin Hoffman lived near Dill City, Dill Dill City, Oklahoma. Hoffman was like, this employee is strange because he carries a pistol everywhere he went, but Williams was a decent worker, and a love of farm- firearms did not make a man stand out in Oklahoma. Because, mm. you know, it's in the 60s. You're like, okay, fair. Oklahoma in the 60s. You just have your firearm, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what wildlife is out in Oklahoma. Um, I'm going to assume some coyotes. So, yeah, that would be good. All I'm thinking of is buffalo, but I don't think a fu- like that size firearm is going to take down a buffalo. <laughs> they're they're quite large. Buffalo, big. Yeah. I've seen the wings, though. The wings are quite small. Just kidding. Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just got it. I just got it. Uh, we can move on. <laughs> they are tasty. <laughs> So, March 30th, 1969, so like a year later, not even a year, um, November to March, um, and however many months that is, Tingler's photograph was broadcast on an episode of the FBI television series, which did not know that was a thing before that. Gonna go, want to go find that, because that sounds like a great time. The FBI TV show? Like... Yeah, it's just called The FBI and it's a television series. Wow. Yeah, I want to see that. So guess who watched that? Our good old friend Don Williams. And he's like, shit, someone's going to recognize me. Because at that point, you have, what, 20 channels? So, <laughs> yeah. You're only watching so much. He became increasingly nervous on the job. And one morning, he failed to report to work. On April 27th, 49-year-old Brooke Hutchinson checked into a motel in Gilman, Illinois, accompanied by a new acquaintance, D.L. Williams. The next morning, the maid found Hutchinson dead in his room, shot four times at close range with his cash and late model for Ford LTD missing. I have no idea what kind of car that is. Don't ask. Mm-hmm. Assuming it's a, it's a vehicle of some sort made by a Ford uh, motor company. <laughs> On April 29th, Don Williams returned to the Hoffman farm driving Hutchinson's car. He left again the next morning, returned, minus the car on May 2nd. So he's going back and forth, all this. I mean, Hoffman has got to think it's weird. But his erratic behavior was drawing attention from the neighbor. And Tingler's time is like even like because he's bringing attention to himself. They're like, that dude's weird. Mm -hmm. By mid-May... Washita County Sheriff's Office was receiving complaints about Williams and his indiscriminate gunfire. <laughs> you know, just shooting things. Just shooting. <laughs> could could you not, sir? <laughs> sir, could you not? 
Sir, sir, could you not just shoot things? <laughs> indiscriminately? Like, yeah. Huh. So, was he shooting indiscriminately? He killed a neighbor's dog without oh provo- provocation. I know! I was mad, too. How dare he? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is the first time. He's killed six people already. I'm like, <laughs> that's my reaction to a dog. But he still. killed a dog! Ha! Ah! Um, which, after the episodes that are coming before this, it's just more depressing. <laughs> and the uh, farmhand was fond of shooting glass insulators from high tension poles lining the highway. So he's just shooting at the posts along the highway. Uh. That's not good. So deputies are like, hmm, okay. And the locals are like, yeah, he looks really like this tingler guy. So you should be careful because he's on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh-huh. On May 19th, a team of federal agents joined sheriff deputies on a second visit to the farm. They found Tingler working in a field, relieved him of his automatic pistol, and took him into custody without resistance. That's good. That's lucky. Yeah. He was tried on six counts of murder. He was convicted and sentenced to die. This was uh, commuted to a life sentence in prison. I believe because at this point, uh, the death sentence for the whole country was commuted. We went away for that for a little bit. and then we Oh, came really? Back. I don't, know. I don't remember what put in thinking music. I'll look at this up. So in 1972, in Furman v. Georgia, the U.S. Supreme Court basically reduced pending death sentences at the time to life imprisonment because of a lot of cases. It was a five to four decision and because it was a violation of the eighth and 14th amendments in the constitution. So that would be um, the, I know one is the eighth is imposing extensive bail, excessive fines or cruel and unusual punishment. Mm. And then 14 is excessive bail. I feel like that's still a thing. I feel like that should be a thing. Um, Equal rights and protections under the law. And it was implemented after the end of slavery. So, but four years later, it was put back into place um, because things, legal things. <laughs> I don't know legal things. <laughs> it's too modern for me. I don't know. <laughs> so he died March 18th, 1995 of organ failure in a Columbus, Ohio hospital. Wow. So you said 95? Yeah. So he was 55 years old. That's all I had. That's yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just doing that. It's probably a lot of murdering on your soul and shooting things. It was really that dog. That dog came back for a vengeance. I would hope so. He's haunted by the dog. He was just living his dog life. Mm-hmm. So. Dick Tingler. Okay. Yep. Well, he has to have three names. No. What's his middle name? Don't have it on here, and I don't know why it's not on here. Oh. It's, uh. Richard Lee Tingler Jr. Wow, that's a serial killer name. The middle name Lee, and especially with the junior at the end. Mm. Yeah. Unlucky. Yeah, so that was our first Ohio serial killer. Like I said, we were not going to have enough because they were literally hitting half an hour now. And I was just like, yeah, this is not enough information (laughs) for a solo episode. So we're going to go to a Dayton serial killer. And just prepared to get mad. Because he's in the KKK. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I just thought I was going to throw it out there. Like, everything I found about him was not directly about him. It was about 
desegregation in Dayton. If you're looking for a really good book on the time period and all of that, it, I didn't get a chance to read it, but it looks really good. It's Blood in the Streets, Racism, Riots, and Murders in the Heartland of America by Daniel L. Baker and Nalz Gwen. And they, um, Daniel is a former Dayton detective, so he knew a lot about this case and mm, had a cool. lot of ac- access. So we're going to talk about Neil Bradley Long. Okay. And there's not a lot of information also about him. So. Neil Bradley Long. I, I lived in Ohio my, well, most of my life. And I had never heard of him. So I feel like I've heard the name Richard Tingler before. And this one I haven't heard of, like even the name of. So this is exciting. Yeah. So he's a native of Dayton, born in 1927. He was a violent racist who could not abide by any progress in the African-American community in Dayton. Mm. So like I said, be prepared to be mad because you're gonna guess who his targeted audience what or uh, <laughs> victims were audience Aye. so in 1966 like i said very minimal information on this man so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're immediately jumping to the 60s he approached local police and confessed to stabbing a black man in the 1940s in 1944 but he was released because detectives could find no record of the crime in their files which again says something. Ooh, that's very mm-hmm. problematic. Mm-hmm. There's no record of the crime. Yep. You gotta keep records. What the fuck? I mean, wait, can I say fuck? I forget. Yes. Okay. You'll swear up. <laughs> oh, yeah. That should be my tagline, swear up. <laughs> so then in 1968, Long spends three months in the Dayton Mental Health Center under voluntary commitment. So he, he his doctor, or... Chief of Professional Services there said, Dr. Roberto R. Monorel said that Long was suffering from, quote, a serious mental condition, end quote, and was classified as psychotic. Mm. But, I mean, is that a good thing that he, I mean, because he, if he, you know, it was a voluntary admission or whatever. I like, think it was good, but then again, they released him. That's not good. And it's also, you have to think of mental health care at the time. Yeah. We're just starting to get into a little better sort of mental health care. I believe believe they outlawed um, lobotomies. I wonder why he, like, admitted himself. Like, what was the impetus? Yeah, that's, there's no information on that. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah, the, let's help blind, you know when the lobotomy was outlawed in the U.S. It's at least not popular. (gasps) I've heard enough. The funny thing is, I've heard, I've listened to enough podcasts on lobotomy. You'd think I would remember. I know that they still do, like, I don't know about lobotomies, but I'm still, I know that they still do, like, ECT and stuff. ECT is different because I've had family members where it, like, help them. It's helps them. It's much more strategic on where mm-hmm. they do it. Um, it was investigated in the 70s, so. Okay. But most countries outlawed it in some states in the 70s, like, in the 70s, so. Okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, we're getting close to that point, so who knows. Well, the police had forgotten about Long, but, you know, the gentleman who goes <laughs> in and goes, I stabbed someone in 44. Yeah, they forgot about him. But Dayton was suffering from a three-year series of shootings of African-American men, and there was about 20 to 30 men that were shot at. Oh, my God. Six were dead, 14 were wounded, and basically the west side of Dayton was segregated. So that's where all the African-Americans lived. And I guess 
on my readings, it seems like it has changed a little, but not a lot. And the community is doing a lot to bring itself back up. So good for you for bringing yourself up and saying we're done taking your BS. So, mm -hmm. um, but at this point, having, you know, African-American men being shot at randomly is bringing Dayton closer to a racial war. Mm. So in the summer of 66, tensions are boiling over on the west side of Dayton. The murder of an innocent African-American man, uh, the community rioted against the treatment of, by the city government and the local police force. So when he, they said they couldn't find documentation that a black man was stabbed in 44, I'm not shocked. I yeah. don't think they had a record for it. Yeah. This is in the middle of the civil rights movement, and the citizens felt they needed to voice their opposition against blatant housing segregation, uh, and it result, which resulted in their children attending poorly funded schools in predominantly African American areas. On top of that, their white neighbors were really prejudicial. Um, the local police were also, as well, very racist or very prejudicial in their yeah. treatment of them. We also have a prominence of the KKK in the city. And these would lead to the Dayton race riot of 1966, which as an Ohioan, I never heard of. I hadn't heard of this. You hear of the Kent State shooting all the time, but you never hear of this. And I'm like, why do we, like, we had state history in elementary school and middle school. Why don't I know about this? Yeah. Well, I guess elementary school, you probably don't want to do race riots. It's a bit much, but in middle school. <laughs> yeah. Little it's, Timmy, what did you learn today about the Dayton race riot? I think it says something. I mean, even if you didn't, like, teach it as a lesson or whatever, I think it's telling that, not, I mean, I had never even heard of this, like, a Dayton race riot. So, like, the, even just the existence of it isn't, well, known enough, you know? No. Especially, like, I never knew Dayton was so prevalent with the KKK at this period. Like, yeah, I didn't know either. I mean, because I associate, I mean, this is my biases and like limits of knowledge or whatever, but I associate the KKK with like the Deep South, not like yeah. Ohio. So, well, the joke is south of I 70 is the Mason Dixon line because <laughs> Northern Ohio and Southern Ohio are a little bit different. Okay. And is Dayton South? Ohio South or of it, yeah, Dayton, okay. Dayton's along I-70. So I could okay. see where the area, it's probably, Dayton, it's not one of the three C's, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus. Columbus. Yeah, Dayton. which are the bigger cities. And then Dayton's like the fourth, it's like the redheaded stepchild. Uh, okay. But, I mean, they're really well known for like the Wright brothers and like there's Wright Pat Air Force Base there. So I think it's changed a bit, but... Still, it's just like, Ohio, you need to do better. Hmm. I love my state, but you need to do better Yeah. in this. Because I think it would really change our outlook of our own state if we knew more about them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like how people think of their the state. Yeah. Because you think, oh, you're in the Midwest. We're more progressive. We're nicer. Like, you have this idea. And I'm like, if I would have known, like, we did have this history of like segregation and all of this. I would want to do more. I would, you would, you would want to change it. You wouldn't be like, oh, it's fine. Cause we've always been like this. Well, it's uh -huh. like, oh, it's not fine. Uh -huh. <laughs> Everything's just patched up and like, everything looks fine, guys. Yeah. Great. The Wright brothers. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so the murder that basically sparked this race riot was Lester Mitchell who was sweeping the sidewalk in front of his apartment 
on 1020 West 5th Street after 3 a.m. on September 1st, 1966, when a shotgun blast tore through his face. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which, I mean, September, it's still going to be hot in Ohio. I'm not going to lie. It's still going to be really hot. So it might just be, it's finally cool enough to go outside and do things and you have a job. So you're like, I just need to, I don't want to do physical effort. Um, Quote, I saw the red of the car and the barrel of the gun. His neighbor, Tommy Campbell, told Daily News, which is where a lot of the first-hand accounts are coming from. All I could tell was that they were white men. Someone said less has been shot, end quote. So how do we know that everyone, like, how could he see them that clearly? Well, housing segregation crammed 60,000 Black residents into perceived uh, ghetto with neglected schools and discriminated city services. So they're just basically crammed into this one portion. So it's tight. You can see what your neighbors are doing. He was probably also sitting out because it's finally cool. Uh, This senseless killing was seen as the spark on top of the kindling that was Dayton's West Side. It was a volcanic eruption. There was um, looting, arrests, riots, armed police response from the National Guard. And it would put Dayton in the national spotlight as the latest American city in the grip of spontaneous rage, which looking at it, it wasn't spontaneous. Right. It had been simmering for a while, but police responded to the scene and it was chaos, said, end quote, said Dan Baker, who is a retired Dayton police officer who worked the West End side with one year under his belt as a rookie cop that September. That's a great way to start your <laughs> race riot the first year you're a cop. <laughs> well then, um, quote, many people had been drinking and they were pouring out of bars in the joints and they were very, very upset about what just happened. Rocks and bottles started being thrown. The crime scene was disrupted and it began to get completely out of control and spread down Hawthorne Street, William Street, and 4th Street, making people making their way da- uh, down to West 3rd Street. End quote. So it's basically just spreading because they wow. find out about, they find out this, this man has been randomly killed. And it, mind you, he wasn't the first one. So you feel like your city's doing nothing to stop this. Yeah. And also, it's probably hot. Yeah, so you're, you're which all always hot. amplifies things. And I mean, if they're not even keeping track of like people getting stabbed, then of course there was probably several other incidents prior to this. You know, I'm pretty sure they can't confirm how many people. Yeah, long killed because yeah. of it. At 10:30 a.m., Dayton's mayor Dave Hall spoke into the bullhorn parked um, of a police car parked on West Third, surrounded by twisted mannequins and shattered glass. He announced that the National Guard was coming. This resulted in a disturbance of the peace, which had been assumed by portions of the like the riot and the mob violence. So I think basically some people at that point had kind of, it mellows out after a while. Mm-hmm. And that basically just was like, you want to throw some gasoline on this? Let's throw some gasoline on this because let's just bring it back on fire. So police in plastic helmets and shotguns stood on, on an uneasy guard and the basically the National Guard comes in and assumes order. Which I'm assuming wasn't very nicely. I could see this not being nicely. Also they were wearing plastic helmets. I feel like that doesn't sound very safe. Okay. Then again, I mean, I don't know how we're in the Rust Belt period of yeah, Ohio. yeah. Okay, this is 60s, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. 60s, 70s, yeah. At least they have some kind of protection. And I guess my yeah. bike helmet is like plasticky foam thing, so... Alright, okay. So, 
this is not like the first racial violence incident towards African-American. Um, they later discover, even though it's not, this is what bothers me. They didn't officially cl- like close the case saying that Neil Bradley Long was the man who killed him, but it seems most likely it was him because he's admitted to so many things. Um, he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and get ready to feel horrible in the 1920s. Some estimate that, say, 25% of Dayton's population were card-carrying Ku Klux Klan members. 20%? In the 20s, yeah. And then so just assume with this pickup of the civil rights movement is the second generation of Ku Klux Klan. So I'm going to yeah. assume it's, it's... Do you think it's more or less or the same? I think it's similar or more, probably, because they're, Cause they're multiplying. Was, well, I wouldn't even say that. It's just if the segregation in the community is so prevalent and then there's there's going to be desegregation, so people are going to not like that change to the status quo. Yeah. So they not might not be card-carrying members. A lot of people aren't, they don't have that I- ideology. They're just like, I don't want things to change. Yeah. And it's always been this way. Why can't it always be this way? So they, they you resist change. It's human nature to resist change. And I think some of it's that. Some of it are, you know, around Dayton, it's very rural. So it's like, you don't get to see different people. You don't get to experience different cultures. So you have a greater tendency to dislike them, make them the other. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that's at least my viewpoint on it. Makes sense. There's a prominent Marinus University on the border. There are several universities. There. Like, you can, you basically can sense the racial tension in the city. You can cut it with a butter knife. Dr. William... Uh, Trollinger, professor at the University of Dayton, explains, quote, in short, Dayton joined Indianapolis, Portland, Oregon, Youngstown, Denver, and Dallas as the hooded capitals of the nation, i.e. cities with the highest percentage of residents as Ku Klux Klan members. There were cross burnings, newspaper articles, and oral interviews suggested a Dayton illuminated by burning crosses in the mid-1920s, end quote. Wow. Did you say Portland as well? Yes. I didn't realize... Portland had such a history. Wow. I mean, I think it depends. The, the Pacific Northwest is very much Scandinavian oh. and Northern European. And then you it's when you see periods of influx of immigrants, influx of change, you like, I laugh people. always, you like the benefits they bring, but you refuse to accept the people. Mm-hmm. Like people didn't like the Irish, but who else is going to build your buildings, build your bridges, build your railroads? And same yeah. with the Chinese. You know, yeah. you didn't want to do it, and then you complain about them. Yeah. <laughs> if you're bringing, they're bringing good to the community, do you want to do the jobs? Do you want to go out in the field and pick things? No? Then stop complaining. Uh-huh. That's, that always bothers me. It's like, you complain that there's no jobs, but you're not going to will, willing to go and do what they do. Mm-hmm. So detectives, when they were interviewing Wong later on, um, it, he admitted to shooting a black male on Cincinnati Street, which they later identified as Robert Horde, he stated just prior to that shooting, he shot and killed another black male subject in the Dayton View area, who they identified as Larry Ramin. So he admits to two. And we know he, he says he's done more. Oh, he's so many more. If he's admitting to two. Yeah. He, he was in, at that point, he was in the middle of a spree, but there's no inform- other information unless you can get to case files and like more detailed things and i think it really the system was working in his favor at this point yeah it sounds like it with the police records yeah because even um 
the author of Blood in the Streets, one of the authors, Daniel Baker, said when he's interviewed, they, he was like, their lack of looking into things made him angry in this current state. He's like, they just didn't, like, the things he said, they didn't always go and look into. They just kind of like, oh, sure, you're crazy. And yeah, just, they didn't <laughs> care. Yeah. It's like, yes, but for the families, it doesn't matter that he's crazy. They just want to know that the killer's caught. And yeah. You're frustrated. So what gets him caught? <laughs> Desegregating schools. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, because that included busing students like Neil's 12-year-old son from one school to another in interest of racial balance. So they were trying to say, okay, because it is historically and even currently obvious that student like schools with a minority white population have more funding and better supplies. So if you even it out, people are more willing to contribute to both and help bring up the schools that aren't doing well and help even out education levels. Also, the science is behind that if you are going to a more mixed school, you have a better idea of the world. You know, yeah. It helps shape you and all of this. Uh-huh. So guess who didn't like the fact that his son was now going to a different school? This long guy. Yeah. Yeah, long. So it include busing a few hundred students, mostly black, to two largely white elementary schools. Fair enough. You know, like, we're going to test it out with a few hundred kids. We're not uh-huh. going to do, like, uh-huh. a little Iraq 12, which, you know, a few hundred kids, you're like, okay, at least you don't feel isolated. Yeah. Well, they put um, Dr. Glatt, Dr. Charles Glatt, in charge of that. He submitted, he had was really in charge of this, and we'll get more into him. He was to submit to the court another desegregation plan by November. So they're starting to do, like, okay, this is step one. Step two, you know, move through. The school board, a majority whose members were opposed to the busing, hired a second uh, consultant to devise an alternative plan that would not include busing, like, like across neighborhoods. Well, on September 19th, 1975, Long picked up his boy from a school at the end of, at the end of the day and promised him, quote, you won't be bused anymore, son, end quote. So there's contention with the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Only an hour later... Dayton's white desegregation planner, Dr. Charles Glatt, was shot four times and fatally wounded in his office at the federal building. You said an hour later? Yeah. Oh, my God. He picked up his son, dropped him off, went downtown. Wow. And shot this guy. Yeah. Glatt, who who was white, was appointed by the federal court to design a desegregation plan for Dayton's public school system. The associates of Glatt said... The 46-year-old consultant feared for his safety. He stayed away from his hotel room, preferring to spend a night or two with friends around the city. So he's already he's already aware it's not a popular thing in the city. And he's like, yeah, I'm not staying at that hotel you paid for me. Uh-uh. <sighs> that seems like a death trap thing. Um, he changed cars frequently and varied his schedule. So basically, it's like co- protocol. Like, you know, don't have a schedule. Change cars. Change places where you are. Uh-huh. Glatt was over six feet tall with reddish hair and was fond of using his background as a rural boy from Frost, Louisiana and talking about his philosophy of integration. So he comes from the deep South and he's like, we're going to, he would say, quote, we Southerners are part of you. He told church group in 1979 talk on integration. Midwestern cities are filled with folks like us from swamps and hills and valleys. And I pledge to you as an educator and a gentleman that there are some of us who are going to change your school systems and your children's and others can come out better because of it. 
it, end quote. So he had already done this in Indianapolis. So this is his second city. So he knows it's, he's prepared. Yeah. Witnesses who were in the federal building at the time said the suspect walked through the open door to Dr. Glatt's office, passed his secretary and asked the consultant, quote, are you Dr. Charles Glatt? End quote. He shot him four times and then he walked out of the building. So the guard who apprehended Long quoted him as saying, quote, I did what I had to do, end quote. So they have documentation of Glatt saying he was concerned about how they would react. The community has no voice in it. Like, this is going to be a problem. It's not going to go well. So he's basically saying, if we're going to desegregate, we need to get the community in on it, a ground up effort. We can't just do it from the top down. Right. You know, completely. So... They identify the subject as Neil Bradley Long, 48 years old, a white service station attendant with a history of mental. So he works at a gas station, basically. Because I don't remember at this point of Ohio, you could pump your gas. Because some states, I know we only have two states now that you can't not pump your gas. Oregon is one of them, right? Oregon and New Jersey. (laughs) He was arraigned in federal court, because remember, he went into the federal building to do this. And uh, Gat was appointed by a federal court so you done and fucked up royally because federal court ain't ain't anything to joke around about yeah so and he was being held without bail on one charge of murder because they didn't know about the rest so they also discovered he matched the description of a man on late summer nights who gunned down at least six so the thing is i got some information from the new york time and they said at least six blacks Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. You're like <laughs> editing um, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, mentally editing. Um, six African-Americans as they walked along deserted streets. So they probably were walking home, walking somewhere. Yeah. They didn't deserve to die. Right. So a former landlord confirmed that Long owned several shotguns and the police removed several shotguns wrapped in sheets from the apartment he was living in. I don't know if his son was living in there, but it doesn't sound like a great home. <laughs> Uh, as for Mr. Glatt, he, because he knew of his danger, he carried a small caliber p- pistol in his briefcase. He never displayed it, but preferred to have the um, open the case with the top facing his visitor to be like um, basically where the back of it is facing the visitor. So if they were going to like say, if he felt like the meeting was getting too hostile, he had a gun to say like, hey, cool it. Oh my gosh. Because he felt like he was being threatened a lot, which, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Long ended up being uh, indicted on seven counts of murder. He was found competent to stand trial in November 1975. So not quite death. Um, the death penalty is off the table in Ohio because we are a death penalty state now. He was convicted on two counts, drawing consecutive terms of life imprisonment. So they really had enough to convict him on two. I mean, yeah, is pretty much they got him at the scene. They knew it. Yeah. But they're not sure when. His shooting rampage began, which really is comforting Mm. when you think about it. And Long said originally he maybe shot 30 people over four years. Oh, my God. So let's just say it's the same number. Like average it out. Yeah. Let's do some math. Be like seven, more than seven a year. You're better at math than me. (laughs) (laughs) 7.5. 
This is not a math podcast. <laughs> That's really my tagline because it comes up a lot. Like, I don't do math. Well, well, apparently in my our last book, I was like, okay, so she was born in 1899 and she died in not, like, uh, <laughs> I was like 1990. And so she was obviously over 100 years old. <laughs> and my mom was like, I think you did math wrong. I was like, probably. <laughs> Don't ask me to do math, right? I found an app to do grades when I had to do grades. Oh, that's nice. It was very, because it was percentages. Um, So you get a percentage instead of points. So there were three confirmed kills. He later told a federal court psychologist that he fired around 100 black, black men, possibly killing 20. So we don't know. It kind of blows my mind how they don't have any records of this for both of them, then. Both of you, the people that you brought up, there's, like, just such lacking local police record-keeping, which... I think Tingler, it's just where it is. He's hitting more rural spots for B&Es, so the resources aren't there. And mm-hmm. then he was in the Army, like, he was in the Air Force, so he moved around a bit. Uh... And so, and, I mean... Okay. We were fans of true crime as a as a population always, but the documentation, unless you like, it was national news in that it appeared nationally, but it wasn't like Bundy and Gacy and all of these. I think if it was happening now, oh yeah, we would know every detail of this man's life. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, still, I think like even with like the true crime genre at large, I feel like you have to a lot of the cases the more popular cases are still like pretty white girls you know or yeah. white rich white girls <laughs> yeah no it's it's fair that's why i i want I'm, i like to do more diverse cases yeah. so if you yeah, have yeah. them send them to me i'm willing to do the research on it it's fine if not if it's still unsolved i'll send it off to status pending and they do an amazing job so oh, yeah mm-hmm. cool they do unsolved cat cases and stuff like that so I mean, send them to me at domesticpodcast at gmail.com if you have, like, more not what yeah, majority Yeah, and that wasn't, like, a set no, thing about... I like, it. I, I like to do more of those cases because I think everyone's stories need to be heard. And as a, po- like, as a popular media, let's say, uh-huh. and prominent media, it's not getting covered. Yeah. So I want to, you know, let's look for the cracks and let's fill it in there. Yeah. That's the academic in my head. I'm like, someone's not doing this? Ooh, tell me tell me everything. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cool that the serial thing, I mean, because, like, the victim was an Asian girl, and then, you know, the main suspect was someone, uh, you know, Adnan Syed. And so it's like, I mean, that's one of the biggest true crime cases ever now. And mm-hmm. yet, like, it's still rare, I think, like, in the wider landscape for you know a story like that to get such coverage i don't know i mean think about it madeline mccann had a documentary this year bundy had two like a documentary and a movie like yeah i'm this is this is kind of also why i love nothing rhymes with murder because they go all over the world so they're getting these different crimes and yeah that's cool local crime crimes and stuff like that so you're like oh i've never heard of this person this is really fascinating and yeah so check them out Tell them I sent you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about his 1975 confession long. And we're going to have some quotes. And you, I will share, there is a full YouTube account of his confession. So 
you want to self-hate, probably go listen to it. Wow. Um, well, well, there was so much trouble go, uh, between color, the colored and white, and the colored was looking like they were doing everything they could at the time. They made threats against the white people, end quote. So that's what Baker, uh, he told Baker and another detective, quote, they didn't want them, meaning white people, in West Dayton. It wasn't safe. It wasn't intelligible to uh, safely go to work across West Dayton. And that's why I first started, end quote. You know, he long described in his confession how he would get drunk on beer and whiskey and cross the bridge to the west side because there is a river going through Dayton. Um, on warm evenings, enough to roll down his windows, he drove his 1964 Oldsmobile at first, fired his sawed-off Marlin shotgun out the window at Blackman as they walked alone, often getting several victims at night. So mm. he's just, it wasn't like, oh, it was just every so often he would go out and shoot people for the sake of shooting people, which is not what you do. You deal with your problems. Yeah. So any the rhetoric it so, makes him sound like he's threatened or something or like he feels like well which is usually the rhetoric right is like we have to protect like white purity or whatever but he's like oh well there were these black people threatening us and so I yeah I got drunk and I shot them randomly like this one's ridiculous but white fragility man white yeah. fragility <laughs> let me tell you it's a thing so you can imagine how popular he would be in prison. Because black incarceration rates are higher than white incarceration rates. Mm. So to protect both black inmates and Long, Long was confined at the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, under conditions of maximum security. He died in a federal pr prison in Minnesota in 1998. So that is two garbage people from Ohio. That had kinda very hidden. long lives, like pretty long lives. Well, 55 is kind of young, but this guy was born in the 20s, right? Yeah, 27, so... Mathing. <laughs> uh, 70-something? 71? Depending on when his birthday is. Um, yeah. So, how do you feel now? Um, you know, Ohio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seems like they've had a rough uh, history. I have, um, yeah, actually my grandpa, I have some family in Ohio and he would always like just randomly say something extremely racist and I would be like, ooh, grandpa, not okay, grandpa. <laughs> like he would call yeah. me, like I'm Asian and so he would like call me different things and it would be like, I think that that's not okay. I think that that's an insult. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I'm glad that they were caught. Yes. Yes. We're very glad that they're caught. This is a good um. thing. Yeah, and I think they're both learning points. Like, hey, maybe eventually you're going to move from burglary to murder if you keep burglaring enough. Yeah, like 13 plus times, you know, probably yeah. not totally a safe person to be yeah. around. Making, like, not the best choices with their life, you know. Maybe we should work on helping them to not yeah. burglar and have jobs and yeah. Get back into society. Yeah. Long just seemed like an angry white dude with mental health issues. And because uh, it's documented that he had mental health issues. So that just means, hey, maybe we should improve our mental health yeah. facilities and availabilities. And hey, maybe we should try to integrate different cultures. They seem cool. Like we were talking about before. There might be dumplings involved. Dumplings you know, are great. Dumplings and avocado ranch dressing. Why does it need to be in either or? You know? 
things can exist wonderfully in the world. <laughs> no one's going to get any of this because it was pre-recorded. <laughs> so much ranch in my apartment right now, <laughs> including avocado ranch. Which was new to me as a, as a dressing. And so I was like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. Do you want to cheer it up with a plug for your podcast? Which is, if you need a true crime break, do check out 33% Pulp because it always makes me happy. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm Lindsay, and I have a podcast called 33% Pulp, and um, we read books in thirds and then release them over three weeks. So uh, check us out now, or check us start with uh, the episode, the books that we did with um, Courtney, which was Do Not Murder Before Christmas. And um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I had. I felt like I had something more to say, but yeah. just thanks. I mean- the one I'm on, there is some singing happening. There it's is a, some bird noises. It's a <laughs> You forgot about that, didn't you? <laughs> well, I did it too in the book because like you just have to, you know? You it's just have to. You have to you have to do the sound. <laughs> <laughs> See, you can we can't not. Like, you know, you just have to do it. It just comes out. <laughs> so. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. Thank so you. Ne- yeah, next week Lindsay will tell us continue her unofficial series. Yeah. <laughs> it was a totally an accident i'll tell you next week but there's more accidental cannibalism tune in <laughs> i just need to make a list of all the unofficial series at this point oh really are there others that like repeat guests that are like oops i did no they're just mine they're just personally mine um, oh, okay. but yeah <laughs> so we'll see you next week listeners bye. bye hey i thought i'd do something fun for my birthday month this year And I would like you guys to play along. I would like you to do a tag with this podcast. So either share it with someone who's your best friend or someone you think would enjoy it. But I think that would be the best gift is you guys sharing the podcast. Maybe, you know, if you're stuck in the car for a couple hours, force your whole family to listen to a couple episodes. I don't know. Have fun with it. Also, if you do it, please tag me in any pictures because I would love to see all the friendship sharing podcast memories. Hey, Lindsay, are you ever curious about those old books with the bargain bins? Oh my God, yes. Hey, Daniel, would you be in a book club where... Funny you ask, because that's our show, 33% Pulp. You, I, and a guest host each read a different third of a pulp novel and then recap the whole thing together. We start with context, the author, genre, themes, and so on. By the end of the third episode, you'll have heard the main plot, our commentary, and confusion. And sometimes we have companion episodes with related content from beyond the book with other podcasts. We're 33% pulp and 100% hopeful you'll join. Bye! About an hour ago, fell somewhere by the table, or maybe the floor. Hey, we're the girls from the Despair and Distress podcast. We sit around drinking, talking about things that creep us out. That is, if we can get past our wildly inappropriate banter. We may not have our facts in order, but we sure have fun trying. <laughs> so, if you're interested in hearing about things you wish you hadn't, then maybe swing by iTunes, Podbean, etc., and give your earbuds a nice little tickle with our podcast. But be warned, if you came here for true facts, you're going to be out of luck. You can also find us on Twitter at beer underscore dis. Or the Twitter. Cult of Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at 
Domestic Podcast, and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.